Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be back at Bethel. I always look forward to my turn to come over because I enjoy being with you folks and worshiping together. And I did appreciate the songs that were sung and the devotional thoughts that were shared. I don't know how all these dots connect. I don't know how what I'm going to share will speak to the individual because all of us are different places and dealing with different things. Um, I do stand this morning with the knowledge that God is in heaven, so my words should be few. The only reason they wouldn't be few is because I haven't yet learned to crunch the concepts that are here this morning into a, a small package. But we'll try to do that the best we can. Um, you know, a person can study a long time and know a lot about God, but that's probably not the way that the knowledge of God comes best. We need that, but I think the way we know God best is simply by walking with Him through life. And as we go through tough things and difficult things, um, that's how one understands His grace and His sovereignty and His power and what what He is. But we do have this invitation this morning to glory in our knowledge of God. I think Isaiah said that. He that glorieth, don't glory in wisdom or strength or resources, but glory in this that he knoweth and understandeth me. And that's a pretty big invitation. We have this invitation on the wall right here. Be still and know that I am God. That's a direct invitation for us to experience something of God and learn to know him. And so he gives us that invitation. And so we uh, want to press into that. But we still have Romans 11 and a few verses there. And I wasn't sure if this is a good way to summarize, but at least it's a place to start. Verse 33, O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. So it's good to gather and worship. And sometimes in our worship we simply recount what we know about God. We talk about his greatness. We talk about his majesty and his patience and his love and forgiveness and all these things. But at the same time, we recognize that God is a mystery and will always be a mystery to us. I think, I think that's true, that he will always be a mystery. We'll never understand him fully. Yet that very mi- mysterious nature of God invites us to explore it and to worship and to come close and wonder at it. And we have a human tendency, I think, when we see something we don't understand, we try to at least understand it enough to put a parameter around it, maybe define it better. And and we learn about about physics. We try to describe how it works and describe what it does. We we learn about space and planets and galaxies. And so we we write textbooks about it. And so now we've got it. We understand what that is. And we do the same thing to technology and the human body and the natural world around us. And what sometimes happens is that when we think we understand something, it loses its mystery, and so it also loses its awe. Um, some people never quite lose it, but often when we think we understand it enough to describe it, we can say, oh, yeah, we've got that now. We, can, we don't have to be amazed anymore at that. And sometimes we do the same thing with God, don't we? Uh, we study him, we describe him, we have terms, we have ways. We can predict him, we think. But the day that we think we have God figured out is the day we often tend to start losing the wonder and awe at who God is. And I think that the people that lose their wonder of God start doing dangerous things with their life, with the way they think. We lose the mystery and lose the wonder of the Lord. 
Now consider this morning everything you know about God. If you could somehow summarize in your mind how big a package that is. All we've read, all we've heard, all the personal experiences we've had. And consider the breadth of that mental picture and how, how much of a grasp we might enjoy. But then consider that beside everything that we don't know about God and how does that compare? Um, if we can somehow picture what we do know beside what we don't know and consider that. Job tried to do that in, in chapter 26 of Job. He's writing a few of the things that he's seen in nature that really amaze him and that just a brief glimpse of the majesty and the wonder. And then Job 26 verse 14 says, Lo, these are parts of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? That's about the best we can do. We have a little description, and then all we're left to do is say, that's, that's just the minutest piece of what he is, and we don't understand the rest. Our knowledge of God, I guess, is a little bit like a six-year-old visiting the ocean for the first time. Maybe he goes out to Ocracoke or the Outer Banks, and, and he's amazed at what he sees, and he runs around and explores it a little bit, and he knows a few things about it. He knows it's wet. He knows there's waves there. He knows that fish and crabs live there, and there's seashells there, and he can't see the bottom, and he can't see the other side, and he goes back home and just effusive about all that he knows about the ocean. It's, it's so amazing and so wonderful, and he loves it, and he can't talk of anything else. But in reality, he tasted the surf. He ran about a quarter mile up and down the beach. He saw out about 2.8 miles, which is about as far as we can see before the curve of the earth takes over. He didn't see Cape Horn. He didn't see the Straits of Magellan. He didn't see a North Atlantic hurricane. He didn't see the tropical beaches of Madagascar. And there's so much of it, he has no idea what it was like, but he, he saw this much. Then he grows up and he studies the ocean and he learns to snorkel and he learns to scuba dive and he starts shallow and he goes deeper and he explores in his scuba gear down to about 250 feet and he's scared stiff every time he does it because things can happen down there and he's drawn back to it over and over and then he goes to college and studies to be an oceanographer and he might spend the rest of his life going between the classroom and the ocean sailing it, mapping it, exploring it, studying about it, what other men know. Today, we know pretty much about our solar system and about our local galaxy and some about deep space. But some people say that we know less about our own oceans than we know about our galaxy because there's so much that we haven't explored yet. At the end of his life, he can say, I met the ocean when I was six. I studied it all my life. I know it so much better, but there's still much more to learn that, than I ever possibly know. And that's where his limits are. It's where his knowledge stops. And I wonder sometimes if all the knowledge of God can be contained on that whiteboard, if we would draw a little square inch in a corner, would that be an overstatement of a representation of our knowledge of God beside what there is yet to learn? I guess if God is infinite, the whiteboard is no place to put it. It's, it's, it's huge. It's bigger. And our knowledge is small. And we're forced to acknowledge that even though God has revealed himself to man, and even though we have in his word all that we need to know to experience salvation and experience a relationship with him, we're forced to acknowledge that what we don't know far, far surpasses that which we do know about, about him. But I'd like to consider briefly 
What is the relationship between what we do know and what we don't know? Well, the first thing is, what we don't know about God yet is never inconsistent with what we do know. I think that's true. I think what God gives us to know is never somehow contradicted. It might be broadened. It might be more complex than we think. But God is never inconsistent because God can never be untrue to himself. Who God is is who God is. We might know this much, but everything else that we don't know is still consistent with that first part. Yet what we don't know, and yet what we might learn to know, will always challenge what we think we know. It's not inconsistent, but it causes us to think and grapple and deepen and, and become more nuanced and more complex in our thinking. And as we learn, as we live life, our experiences, a greater revelation of His ways uh, will continue, continually challenge us. But does our theology allow for a God who is free to do whatever He wants? Um, God can't be unjust. He can't be unholy. There's no outside standard telling God what holiness is because He Himself is the perfect standard of that. So all that He would choose to do is consistent with that holy nature. Does our view of God allow for the things about Him that we haven't learned yet? What if God did something unexpected, something unforeseen? Does it shake my faith in ways that, that cause me to lose faith? Do I ever place God in debt to my own expectations? Is God a mathematical formula that if, if this plus this equals this, then God will always do a certain thing in a certain situation? Is God forced to do a certain thing or act in a certain way, and will I trust Him if He doesn't? Um, many have learned and experienced the unexpected and have faced that question. Does my faith still alive when God does things and allows things that went far beyond whatever thought would happen. A little over a week ago in Guatemala, Keith Crider was helping on a roof. I'm sure you heard the story. He fell through a skylight and died. He was 64 years old. He was a humble and a useful man, both in Christian light and in MAM and many other places, I'm sure. Um, he was a workhorse. And Dwayne Evie put a little message out. He's part of our MAM board. And he said, of all the stupid things that the missionaries have done over the last 50 years, this is the first fatal accident that's happened. And we don't know why. Um, he was up working on a roof along with other people. Very commonplace thing to do. Was God within his sovereign right to allow it? And can it ever be for good? Charles Wesley Naylor, I think he was born in 1874 and died in 1950. Born in Ohio, raised in West Virginia. He... Uh, I think he went to the Church of God. He had evangelistic meetings. But he, one time he was taking down a tent in 1908, and a timber fell on him. And he dislocated a kidney, had some internal injuries, so he was pretty damaged for 1908 with the medical uh, limits. But he survived that. And a year later, he was in a bus wreck. And that paralyzed him for the rest of his life. And he was a young man, 35 years old, I guess, at that point, bedridden for the rest of his life, which was about 35 or 40 years later. And he wrote eight books, wrote many pamphlets, many songs after his uh, accident. And one of the songs he wrote was this one, God's way is best if human wisdom a fairer way may seem to show. Tis only that our earth-dimmed vision the truth can never clearly know. Had I the choosing of my pathway, in blindness I would go astray and wander far away in darkness, nor reach that land of endless day. 
God's way is best. Heart, cease thy struggling to see and know and understand. Forsake thy fears and doubts, but trusting, submit thyself unto his hand. God's way is best. I will not murmur, although the end I may not see. Where'er he leads, I'll meekly follow. God's way is best, is best for me. And that song means more knowing where it came from. And many people have had that experience, a time in their life when what they thought they knew about God and his fairness was severely tested, and they were forced to grapple with this. They didn't know that God would be unfair. They didn't know that God would treat them this way or allow this thing to happen. But as they walked that path, they began to realize that what they were learning about God was not inconsistent with what they already knew about God. But they were swimming deeper in the ocean, and they were plumbing its depths and exploring its expanse when many people never left the shore. And in their experience with God, were being taught things that many people just never learn. So those are a couple of preliminary thoughts. I'd like to look at two Old Testament people, maybe passages. And here I think we can learn about God, but also learn about our mistaken and limited ways we often view uh, the Lord and what we expect of him. The first one is in Psalm 74, 73. Sorry, look, look that up. We're going to read most of this passage, make a few comments here. But I'd like to start by saying that I believe it's right to have an expectation of God. Because without it, there's no faith, there's no hope, there's nothing to stand on. It's proper even to think that uh, God will do a certain thing or God will act in a certain way. His word is clear, his promises are sure, the blessings of God have been well documented. But, you know, if God would always come through the way we expect it and predict it, uh, God would become a little more manageable, wouldn't it? A little more predictable, a little more like a science experiment and a test tube, like a like a, a chemistry thing. Um, but what happens when God operates outside of those assumptions? Will we trust him then? Will we serve him no matter what? So there's two men here in the Old Testament who operated probably largely on the same assumptions that we have and struggled when those assumptions were threatened. And Psalm 73 is one of the most honest of the Psalms, I believe. There's many, but this one stands out. But it speaks directly to the way we think about God's justice and certainly the way Asaph thought about it. And in verse 1 of Psalm 73, it says this, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. And so right there we have a premise of our faith in God. We believe God to be good, and Asaph here is stating what he knew God to be. First of all, good to his chosen people. He did not choose people to mistreat them. He, he said that God will be good to his chosen people. All of Jewish history would emphasize that. And Asaph has no reason to doubt it. It says that God is good to those who are, of, are clean in heart. And we know that. We know that personal choices about sin directly affects God's blessing on my life and my relationship with him going forward, my well-being. Sin brings punishment. We know that. Righteousness brings reward, doesn't it? Obedience brings blessing. And so in this thought, there's the concept that God is inherently just and fair. And underlying our view of, of our service of God, we tend to look at it this way. Uh, God will be fair. There's a benefit in serving God over not serving God. There is profit in making righteous choices. We, we, th we think that way. My life will be better if I believe and obey God than if I don't. Uh, 
Those are things we can agree with probably in some level. And so this is what, this is what Asaph is saying, making a statement about God's character. Then we read on here in verse 2, But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, which was a compliment back then. They have more than heart could wish. So look at how they're living their lives. Everything was going fine. There was... uh, they were prosperous, no lingering diseases, no struggle in, their, in, uh, in the end of life. They had things going well, uh, not lacking a thing. And then we get to verse 8, and it says, They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh throughout the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know, and is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. So here's here's the problem. Ecclesiastes 8, 12, 11 says that because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men are fully set to do evil. And that's exactly what's happening. They're enjoying a good life. There's really no, no road bump or speed bumps to point out their wrong direction. There's nothing they could look to in their life. No de- they're not deprived of anything. And so because of their prosperity, they're emboldened to continue in wickedness. Um, and they start asking questions. They start challenging God, the things that uh, they speak wickedly. They speak against heaven. They mock God. And beyond all that, they're still getting richer. And it seems like nothing is slowing them down. And so Asaph is struggling a little bit, looking at that. Because his assumption about God's fairness is being challenged. Then we have verse 13. We read 13 already. I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. And so that's the question. Is it true that it's better to serve God than not? If you look at the evidence of all the wicked people, they would say, not really any evidence there. Is there no benefit in living for the Lord? Asaph was struggling to find it. And so the very pillars under his view of God are being shaken a little bit, being challenged a little bit. The wicked prosper. I'm being plagued. Every day God is punishing and chastening me. And here's where his honesty gets tested. He said, if I would voice my doubts about God, uh, I'll offend God's people. If, if I start saying what I'm thinking, if I start talking about what I'm struggling with, it might shake other people's faith too. Have we ever struggled with that? When God seems a little distant, and we seem a little shaken, um, our very conviction that serving God is worthwhile is, is, is struggling. Yet we, we can't talk about it. We can't speak up because who knows what that will lead to other people. And so I'm left alone to struggle. And other people that might be struggling with the same thing are struggling. And so we each sit there. And so in writing this psalm, he's being very honest with how he's feeling about that. 
And so he was hurting, but then we get to verse 16. When I thought of the, to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down to destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They were utterly consumed with terror. In verse 21, Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. It seems that, that he found his footing by realizing a few things. I think one thing that he overlooked, and I think we find that here, that the accounts of the wicked are not all settled this week, but God will never leave them unsettled. That's one thing that is it's a sure thing. So these people that are living life as if there's no tomorrow, enjoying their wickedness and their sin and having no consequence for it, uh, we can be certain that that is a temporary state. And that's one thing that Asaph overlooked. And the other thing that I think he points out and understands is that the blessings of life are not a good measure of God's pleasure and God's reward. Now, that's something that we often get tripped up in. We think that somehow God must prove his pleasure and his approval of my life through my experience today and the, the income and the, the lifestyle and the blessings and the physical things. Um, Asaph struggled because he saw that wasn't happening. But that's not proof. So he found his footing here in several things. I am continually with thee. He realized that in spite of the absence of some other things, that God's presence was a continuous reality. You will guide me with your counsel, and you will receive me into glory. That was the thing that, that captured his imagination and boosted his faith. And I believe when he left the tabernacle, he was solid again. He says he was. And what he had learned about God was not inconsistent with what he had already known, but it had to be broadened. It had to be deepened. He had to understand things a little further than he already had. I don't know how our faith feels when it's shaken, and sometimes, sometimes we see some people struggling with things. I see people like Judy back at home, years and years with severe pain. I wonder how in the world can she keep on going like that? And there's other people like that. But is God false? when he allows things and operates in ways that go beyond our expectation. All of us will struggle for answers. Sometimes these are discouraging and trying times, but when faith carries us through, we can come out stronger and know God better. The second Old Testament character, of course, is Job, and we don't have time to read the book of Job. I'm assuming you've already done that. But it's instructive to listen in on his conversation with his three friends. And in a way, Asaph and Job are asking the same questions, but on opposite sides. Uh, Asaph is asking, um, Asaph is asking, why is it 
that the wicked whom God should be punishing are living just fine. And Job is asking, why is it the just who should be prospering are suffering? And that's the same, two sides of the same question. Um, And I think we can find in this book many things that speak into this question. And we need to just reemphasize that God, we we can have expectations of God, but God will not be held to those expectations. God is dependable, but God is not always predictable. God is, can be trusted, but he cannot be coerced. God invites us to understand him, says so. But in all of our understanding, God is bigger than that. And so we go to the first verse in Job. We're in Psalm. We can jump back to the first verse in Job. And that very first verse uh, describes something that we can agree with. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So that verse, those first three verses, fit our theology pretty good. said they were born to him, seven sons, three daughters, large family. His substance was 7,000 sheep, 300 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. He was perfect and upright. He feared God. He hated evil. He had a beautiful family. He had many nice children who loved life and loved dad and loved each other and lived well, and they were a happy family. They celebrated each other's birthdays. And he was wealthy beyond all the other people in the East. And Job loved and respected God so much, and he loved his family so much that every time they got together for a carry-in or a birthday party, he would go and offer a sacrifice the next morning just in case someone had fallen short of the glory of God. And so you see here a an upright and godly man, as well as a wealthy man. And our sense of God's justice and God's fairness runs pretty deep, and we sort of envision this is what it must look like. There's a man by the name of Ray Stedman who taught about the book of Job back in the 70s, and he wrote this, I do not think there is anything more subtle in our lives than this instinctive feeling we all have, that if we behave ourselves, God ought to give us blessing and prosperity. And we would eschew probably the health and wealth gospel. But deep down inside, we almost have an expectation of at least a certain amount of that. And Job fits the description. Fear of God, lovely family, great wealth. And then we get into the book of Job. And the events of Job are given in two ways. Here, uh, we have the bottom-up view like Job saw it. Uh, this series of tragic events all in a row the same day. His children were killed, his animals were killed, his servants were killed, and all these calamities happened in the same day. Now, what Job saw was something completely devastating because he was just seeing the earthly picture of that. Now, we could read that the same way, but we also have the other picture. We have the view of heaven and earth working together. And so we have the top-down view of what's happening, not just the bottom-up view. And we see the discussion of Satan and God, and we see God pointing Job out as an exemplary figure of faith. And Satan's challenge that man always looks out for himself, and if you take away all the good things that he has, he will curse you to your face. And uh, Job didn't know that. Job didn't see that. And after this destruction, he could only say, well, God is the giver and God is the taker. So God was the destroyer. And here we find that quandary. If God is the giver, is he also the taker? Did God destroy Job? Um, If God didn't, he certainly could have stopped it, I guess, had he chosen. And that was round one. And then we get round two. 
and Satan touched Job's body and was sitting out on the ash heap with bulging, pus-filled pockets of ooze with a pot, broken piece of pottery scraping himself to try to keep from going insane. And his wife challenged his integrity and told him, just curse God and die and get this over with. But Job again says, attributes this to God, and says, shall we receive only good and not evil? But still Job did not sin. Now Job struggled with the same struggle that people in every age have faced. Uh, God promises favor and blessing to those that fear and trust him. But in Job's personal experience, it had all been taken away. And so suddenly what he thought he knew about God was severely shaken. Job also knew that God is sovereign and all-powerful. And sitting there on the ash heap, he knows that every day is a day God is just letting this happen. Again and again and again. And that, that brings up a real quandary, and we've faced the same thing. If God is good, then he must always do good, because he can never do something that is not good. But if God is also sovereign, then what does that say about his responsibility for evil? It's a question we, we think about and grapple with. Somebody wrote this parody on the doxology. Blame God from whom all cyclones blow. Blame him all creatures here below. Blame him who knocks down church and steeple, who sends the floods and drowns the people. Is that true? Somebody said there is a modicum of truth in that. It is God who has allowed it to happen. This is what makes our faith tremble and quail, and we come up with superficial answers to, to what is happening. And so Job's three friends come, and Job states the same difficulty that Asaph had faced, but backward. Asaph was saying, why do the wicked prosper? Job is saying, why do the righteous suffer? If God is good and God is fair, this shouldn't be like this. And those are natural responses to a God that operates beyond my knowledge and my understanding. And so both Job and his friends start from the same premise. They're both saying, God protects those that serve him and God punishes those that don't. That's our basic premise, our basic understanding of God. God is always fair. There's a benefit in serving God, so there must be a, a reverse benefit in not serving God. And here we are experiencing the opposite. Job's friends insist there must be a problem with Job. And I think Job's questions indicate that Job thinks there must be a problem with God because Job knows his own heart and doesn't know anything that would cause God to do this. Now, we need to be careful how we quote Job sometimes because all through the things that Job's friends say, you can find truth after truth after truth, right? But you get to the very end and God tells Job, your friends, or I guess he told Eliphaz, my anger is kindled against you and your friends because you have not spoken that which is right about me. So all those things that look like good quotes through the book of Job, somehow the, even though the facts were there, somehow the overall view and nuance was not. Something was missing in their view. And so they, they did one thing right. The first thing they did was sat there quiet for seven days. It should have gone on a little longer. But in verse 1 of chapter 4, Eliphaz went first. In chapter 4, he couldn't be quiet anymore. He said, if we he was very polite, very humble, very, uh, he came across that way eloquently. Job, you've been a trusted advisor. You've helped many people in, your problem, in their problems. Now it's your turn. Follow your own advice. If your own medicine worked for someone else, then try it for yourself. 
He said this in verse 7 of chapter 4, Remember, I pray you, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. So Eliphaz had this equation theology. This plus this equals this all the time. There's no exceptions. And so if this plus this equals that, then in your case, this is what, this is what it is. Sin, sin brings suffering, therefore suffering equals sin. That was the way he viewed it. And he's basically saying, if you just repent of this hidden sin that surely you know must be in your heart, and if you just accept God's punishment, it's all going to get better. You will be prospered, you will heal, you will, be, you will grow old in peace. In fact, in verse five, chapter 527, such a trite and honest answer that seems so, such a confident platitude, a neat doctrinal package that's sure to work. Lo this, we have searched it, so it, so it is, hear it, and know thou it for thy good. This is good advice, Joe. We know it's true. If you just take this, it'll work. Bildad went next. He was less tactful. He was a little more brutal and a little more self-assured and a little more cold, and he just said it like he thought it was. He listened to Job's words, but he did not understand the depth of Job's misery. And he says this in verse 3 of chapter 8, God will never be untrue to himself. We just said that, didn't we? If he punishes, he always does it for a reason. Therefore, he's punishing you for a reason. In verse 4, it says, Your children died probably because they had sinned against God, and so God just cast them out of the way. Verses 5 and 6, If you were pure and upright, God would step up for you because that's what God always does. He always does that, right? In verse 20 especially, Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, Neither will he help the evildoers. That's just who God is. Therefore, in this case, we fully understand why you're suffering is because you're sinning. He was just as convinced as Eliphaz. Chapter 11, Zophar went last. Same theme, just sort of a repeat, different words. Oh, that God would accuse you himself. God hasn't even given you what you deserve. You deserve more than this, Job. In verse 14, if you'd only put away your wickedness, you would forget your misery and your fear. Those are just a few of the comments that these friends made. Were they true? Are there some echoes of truth in what they're saying? Well, it comes from this basic understanding of God that God punishes evil, God blesses good, and God rewards his people, his servants. And so they had, they had a bit of a wrong approach. There was no identifying with Job. There was no praying for Job. There was just, a, this is the way we see it. This is the way it is. Very narrow, very misapplied. Um, they forgot that their understanding is finite and God is infinite. And they had very little humility about things they didn't understand. Ray Stedman said this, these friends represent people, and there are many around today who have what they think is a clear understanding of all the ways of God they think they can predict how he is going to act, but when he acts in a way that they do not understand or expect, they have no way of handling it because it is their creed they have faith in and not in God himself. So their limited view is the limit of who God is, and therefore they try to invent reasons. There's a lot of things we could say about this. I do think there's two areas in which we must exercise caution. One is in the way we handle our own faith when we hit things like this. And what we thought we understood about God is being violated in my personal life. Uh, 
Let's be careful to trust the person and not trust in what I thought was true about who God is and how God will be. And give God time. If you look at Job's story, Asaph's story, given enough time, God always proves himself to be who God is. But then it comes in our counsel to other people and encouragement to those who suffer. So often we rush in with good advice to try to solve their problems from our perspective. We speak from our own limited knowledge into a person's heart that is struggling with things far beyond anything I've ever experienced. And I remember a time years and years ago that someone was struggling with some family things, and I was young and confident, and I just heard a set of tapes, and I thought, this is the perfect remedy, and I just got a set and sent it to the brother and thought, you just listen to these tapes, and I'm pretty sure it'll help you in your struggle. Oh, my, if I could take that back. Job wasn't perfect. There were things in his life he didn't understand yet. But he basically told his friends, in my experience, what you're saying isn't true. The wicked live, they become old. They become mighty. They have children, their houses are safe, their animals do well. They enjoy music, they enjoy health, they enjoy wealth. When it comes time to die, they don't suffer much, they just die quick. And their ease of life makes them say, where is God and why do I need God? And that's the same thing Asaph said. Someone said that a man with an argument is no benefit to a man with experience. And here were Job's friends with their arguments, and Job was in the middle of the experience, and what they had to say did not resonate with him. Then Elihu comes along. It's interesting that God does not reprimand him. It seems of all the four that spoke, Elihu was the one that came closest to speaking the truth about God. Um, God doesn't, when he comes, doesn't condemn Job for his questions, or Elihu for his comments, just the three friends, for charging Job with wickedness. But he states two things that I think are important. Number one, God will be just. He will never do wickedly. It's true that not all God's accounts are settled this week, but God is always true to his nature. And the second thing is that God is never accountable to man for what he does. He will do what he will do. Job thirty-three thirteen. I believe this is him speaking. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. And so that's basically what Job had to acknowledge in the end, saying, there's so much about God that I don't understand, I'll put my hand upon my mouth and be quiet. And just recognize that God is God and I'm not. And he will do things sometimes mysteriously. He will operate in a realm beyond my understanding. And he will sometimes do things that makes my reasoning flinch and my sensitivities quail. But may we as Job never charge God foolishly. Or sin. In the end, it was both God and Job that were vindicated. God's character uh, was vindicated. He, he turned Job's suffering back into joy and rejoicing and great reward. God's trust in Job was vindicated when he could say to Satan, look, all this you put him through, enough is enough. He was faithful, not because of what I had given him, but because of his trust and love for me. Job was vindicated. God did not reprove Job's character. His words were justified. And so we're left to wonder God's ways, why he does what he does. We sing songs like, God's way is best, I will not murmur. We should think about what we sing. We're left to consider these words. I'm sure you've read them before, this poem. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, 
when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed. Watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. I don't know if we ever found ourselves there in that crucible, like Job did, maybe like Asaph was feeling. But Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways, your ways, saith the Lord. So may God bless us this week. I'm afraid we've opened more questions than given answers. It's a glimpse of this, this idea that God does know what he's about. And if he works beyond our range of limited understanding, may we just take the opportunity to, to explore a deeper portion of his vastness that we've never touched before and exercise faith in his goodness that have never been called on before and learn to trust his unchanging nature even when it seems like it's being challenged. God bless you this morning.